2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. Father, this is a joyful and a weighty passage. And as I prepared this week, and as I read through it now, I am aware of so many people in our congregation that are hurting and suffering in various ways and forms, and I am confident that your word ministers to our hearts. And so I ask, Lord, that you would do that this morning, that you would bring to bear the word of God upon each and every one of our hearts, that we might know you and the comfort that you give. So guide my words, and may all of us, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we read through that passage, I hope a couple of words maybe jumped out at you that would immediately give you a distinct sense of what this passage is about, right? Repeated words like comfort, comforts, comforted, affliction, despair, suffering, hope, and deliverance. Immediately, those should have been like red lights in your mind as to this is what Paul is talking about. This is the theme of the passage. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been reading through 2 Corinthians in my personal time in the Word, and I've seen throughout this letter that it is largely about strength through weakness and comfort in affliction. It's very different from many of other, uh, Paul's other letters. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not as theological uh, as, say, Romans. It's very pastoral in its nature. And I think this passage fits really well, actually, with where we'll be going in Romans chapter 5, as Paul will unpack there uh, another aspect of what is happening in us through suffering. And I hope this morning as I prayed that this passage will be an encouragement, a bolstering of faith to everyone who is suffering in our fellowship. 
even those who don't consider themselves to be in a season of deep suffering or sorrow. There's much to learn from this text this morning. The New Testament is filled with passages regarding suffering, and many of them are familiar to us. You think promises of suffering, encouragements during suffering, encouragements to persevere. It's an indisputable fact that suffering is an ever-present part of the Christian experience, an ever-present one. And so ever-present is suffering that I often think we miss or dismiss difficulties in life for what they truly are, suffering. I recently heard a definition of suffering from a man named Mark Talbot, and it really reorients what we think of as suffering. And he says this, he defines suffering in this way. It's any experience which is unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end. (laughs) That's suffering, right? And with that definition, who is not suffering in some way? Right? Even just living in a fallen world, there are every day unpleasant experiences that we would like to end. So suffering is any experience which is unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end. Thinking about suffering in this way is, is not only biblical, but as we will see just in a minute in 2 Corinthians 1, when we understand suffering properly, it allows us to know things about God which we can only know through suffering. So we'll see a bit necessarily in comfort. And not only do we know aspects of God's character more intimately when we understand properly what suffering is, but then we can be a blessing to others as well when we understand what suffering it is and how God meets us in our suffering. This way of thinking about suffering is also biblical. I appreciate that Pastor Jess read Hebrews 12 before talks about that role of discipline. And there, the writer of Hebrews again, he's reminding us that discipline is from the Lord who loves us. Now, discipline and suffering are not to be understood necessarily as two different things. Think about it in this way. Suffering is what God allows and what happens to us in a sin-cursed world and sometimes comes upon us as a result of our own sin. Discipline is the good that God brings out of our suffering. As Hebrews 12 says, discipline forms us and shapes us for what purpose? That we may share in his holiness. So many of our favorite passages about suffering, like Romans 5 and James chapter 1, are saying the same thing as Hebrews 12 is, and it's this, that God uses our suffering for his glory and for our good. Scriptures are very clear about this. So when we have this proper understanding of what suffering is, and that every one of us experiences it in some way, I think we can begin to look at 2 Corinthians 1, understand what Paul is saying, and apply it to ourselves. Now, before we jump into the text, and this morning we're going to do, as I am very wont to do, and just kind of walk our way through the text, we have to set the context a little bit. Whenever you're entering a new book, you need to have some idea of what this book is all about. 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul has written to this church. Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 18, you can go read it on your own. You read about Paul's first or his missionary journey to Corinth. There he goes to the Jews and he preaches the gospel in the synagogue as he was uh, prone to do. And they rejected him. They rejected the gospel. And so he went to the Gentiles. He spent 18 months there. So a considerable amount of time spent with these people where he would get to know them and they would get to know him. He's ministering amongst them. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul mentions an earlier letter that he had written to them. And you remember that phrase? He says, uh, I wrote to you before that you should not associate with anyone who is sexually immoral. Okay, so he's referencing a prior letter. And that would have been the first letter to the church at Corinth. But that one is lost to history, not an inspired one that should be in our Bible. So 1 Corinthians is the second letter that he has written to them. And again, 1 Corinthians, we read it and we think, this is a really messed up church. Right? He's writing to them. There's a lot of problems that he needs to address and respond. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16 and verse 5, he writes to them and he says, my plan is to come back to you because he's not there. I'm going to go to Macedonia and on the way, on, I want to come back uh, to you. However, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you see that Paul didn't end up going back to Corinth as he had originally planned. He says in chapter 2, uh, Verse one, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He had determined that to go back to Corinth at that time would be too painful for him and to be too painful for the church at that time. So instead, he sends another letter. And this time he sends it with Titus. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter seven, he talks about how Titus took the letter to you. And the letter that I, I wrote, this, what would be the third letter, which we don't have, it caused them to grieve and it caused them to grieve in a godly way so that they were grieved to repentance. And so Titus brings back word to Paul of the change that has happened in the church and there's rejoicing over that. So now Paul is writing them this fourth and final letter that we know of to the Corinthians and he's preparing to go back to Corinth. Now, this is Paul's most pastoral letter. You have the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus, which is, again, a lot of direction for pastoral ministry. But this is Paul's pastoral heart in Second Corinthians. He's still addressing issues that are in the church. And one of the most prominent in Second Corinthians is defending his ministry against what he calls so-called super apostles, right? There's apostles, and then these guys called themselves super apostles. I think that's probably a little bit sarcastic, from, from Paul. But these super apostles were trying to push Paul away and put a division between him and the church in Corinth. And he had seemingly been misunderstood or misrepresented in the church to some degree. Many had forgotten how Paul had lived amongst them for 18 months. They viewed his physical weakness as a sign of weakness rather than seeing it for what it was, not ineffective ministry, but it showed that the power that that worked through Paul was from God. So 2 Corinthians is a very emotional book, extremely pastoral in tone. Paul has been hurt by these believers, uh, yet he has great love and affection for them. And so this pastoral letter is so wonderful for sufferers, as it is, it is a balm, I believe, to those who are suffering. So we're going to work through the passage in this way. The first three, first two verses, verses three and four, I think Paul is laying out his premise. This is his point that he wants them to understand initially about suffering. And it's simply this. God is comfort and gives comfort to those who are afflicted so that they can share God's comfort with others. That's what he says in the first verses three and four. He begins with this verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of mercies and God of all comfort. Notice that Paul begins with praise. When he's going to talk about suffering, the first thing he does is bless God. 
He speaks well of him. And I think that's a really crucial tone he's setting in a book that is largely about human weakness and suffering. Right? If you consider Paul is saying, hey, let's get our eyes. Let's praise God who does these things, who is these things. What he's doing is he's humanly, physically weak. And rather, he's saying, through my weakness, you're not to look at the man. Don't look at all my problems, although he will talk about them. I'm not going to focus on that. The focus is directed to God. Where the man, Paul, will be seen, God is seen rather, or God is seen greatly through his human weakness. So he says, blessed be the God and Father, or praise belongs to God. He is speaking well of God. And then he explains why. Why is God worthy to be praised of? And it's this, because of who he is for people who are afflicted. So first of all, he says, he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This does not mean Jesus was created. That's not what he's referencing here. Paul is rather referencing Jesus's submission to the Father in the incarnation, right? That he laid aside the glories of heaven and he came to earth, as he says in Philippians chapter two. But then he has this wonderful phrase, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This is who God is. This is why he is to be praised because he's the Father of mercies and he's the God of all comfort. So this shows us who God is towards us, and what he is. Understand that God is himself comfort. He gives the very comfort that he is. He gives himself as comfort to his afflicted people. Consider these passages. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, describes him, merciful and gracious. Of course, we always want to remind ourselves of what we mean when we talk about the word mercy. It's withholding what we deserve. He's merciful and gracious. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 14, this is David towards the end of his reign. He's being judged for sinfully numbering the people. And there the Lord comes to him and says, because of your sin, you can either experience three years of famine, you can flee for three months from your enemies, or the Lord will bring three days of pestilence upon the people. And what's David's response? Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Or Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, comfort is what God gives to his people. So through Isaiah, he says to them, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God is worthy to be praised for who he is and what he does. And then notice in verse 4, the, the result of that in our lives. Right? He comforts us in all our affliction because he's the God of mercies. The Father, uh, the, he is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, so we can comfort, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a lot of usages of the word comfort in this passage. It's kind of a kind of a tongue twister in a way. But notice here in what afflictions we receive the comfort of God. Is it some? This is a very basic Sunday school answer. No, it's all, every single affliction. 
Every single suffering and sorrow, God provides comfort. God cares about you and gives himself to you as a comfort. This is important because this means you don't need to downplay your suffering or put your suffering in comparison to somebody else's suffering. Well, I don't have it as bad as this person. Well, that's true. But yet at the same time, the Lord cares about you and he gives you comfort. He's not looking and going, well, you're not suffering as much as this other person, so you don't get the same amount of comfort as this person. No, he gives comfort in all our afflictions. And then, there's a, this is the purpose, really, of, I think, 2 Corinthians 1. So we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. We are comforted by God to comfort others. Then in verse 5, down through verse 7, I think he moves to how this premise is worked out. Okay, so you may be, uh, perhaps a question arises in your mind and it arises in mine. Okay, that's, that's cool what you say. I like the sound of that. But how does that practically work out? I'm afflicted. How am I comforted? And how am I going to comfort others? Because I'm hurting. I'm in a terrible place. How is it that I can have that perspective of verses 3 and 4 when I'm afflicted. Notice, first of all, first half of verse five, where he talks about sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So the first thing that we need to see to help us understand and experience and know the comfort of God so we can comfort others is that we share in Christ's sufferings and we share in Christ's comfort. Let's think about this. Understand this. Our suffering is to be understood as with and for Christ, So our comfort is from Christ. We need to see our suffering and affliction in view of Christ, view it Christologically. Your suffering is a part of Christ's suffering. Well, how is that, you say? I've got a physical ailment. How am I suffering with and for Christ? Those of you in our small group, don't fall asleep here. I shared some of this with you a couple weeks ago. Uh, Pay attention. This isn't a moment for you to tune out. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, in his chapter on suffering, talks about this this concept, and it was very helpful for me. And the point he makes there is that all suffering is suffering with and for Christ because we are choosing to follow Jesus. And so every suffering that comes to us in that path of following Jesus is suffering with and for Christ. He says this, in choosing to follow Christ in the way he directs, we choose all all that this path includes under his sovereign providence. So that means suffering of all kinds. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ, whether it is cancer or conflict. He goes on, all experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. They threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience, right? When you're, you're suffering, one of the temptations that comes to you is, I got to get out of this in whatever way I can. I'm going to disobey God to get away from this uncomfortable thing. So he goes on to say, therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance and obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin, or sabotage, right? So every affliction, every suffering, when we 
walking that path, we're following Christ, we're tempted to leave that path because the, the affliction is great. Instead, we continue to follow Jesus. He keeps us persevering. This is suffering with and for Christ. I think it's a wonderful perspective on suffering. Suffering for Christ is not lim- limited to simply persecution for being a Christian, right? That's oftentimes what we think it is. I'm only suffering for Christ if somebody's trying to kill me when I'm sharing the gospel with them. That's not what suffering for Christ is only. Suffering for Christ is choosing all that comes to us in the path of following Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. I think Paul is saying this very thing there. There he says, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And then if you think, look at verse seven of chapter four as well. There, what is he talking about? He says, we're like jars of clay physically. And then in verse 16, he's gonna say, our outer self is wasting away. Right? He's talking about physical affliction and suffering, the failing of his body. But yet in verse 11 there, he said, all of this is for whose sake? For Jesus' sake. All of this is for Jesus' sake. Our suffering as a Christian, no matter what it is, is suffering with and for Jesus. In Acts chapter 14, we find out that our afflictions are Christ's sufferings because it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? You're not going to enter the kingdom of God apart from some form of suffering in your life. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Uh, Damascus. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did he persecute the physical Christ? No, who did he persecute? The church, right? So when, when the church is suffering, it's Jesus suffering. Christ identifies himself with his body. Colossians chapter one, Paul talks about how his suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And by that, he means that our sharing in Christ's sufferings through our suffering can take the good news of the afflictions of Christ for sinners to those who've never heard of the afflictions of Christ that he suffered for sinners. So don't miss here in verse five, the first half of it, that just as we share Christ's afflictions, so we share in his comfort. We're suffering with and for Christ when we suffer. But how is it that comfort comes to us? Well, look at the second half of verse five and into verse six. Understand here that what Paul is saying is the afflictions he experiences are for the comfort of the Corinthians, okay? Well, how can your suffering, Paul, another person's suffering be for my comfort, Well, he says this because he understands what it means to be united with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ is a wonderful doctrine which declares that we are in Christ. We are vitally connected to him. As the vine is connected to the the branch, we are vitally connected to him. He is our life source so that all that is true of Jesus, he is then that just as he died, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter six, as he died, so we died with him as he was raised to life. So we've been raised to life with him. All that is true of him is true now of us spiritually. By being united to Christ, the head of the body, we are thereby connected to every other part of the body. That's why Paul uses that example in 
1 Corinthians 12. Jesus is the head of the church. And then every other part that makes up the church, part of the body, is connected to the head and thereby connected to one another. So by virtue of our union with Christ, we are in his body. So then when other members of the body comfort us, we are being comforted by Christ. When you comfort a suffering brother or sister, an afflicted one, it's like Christ is comforting you. Because he, Paul is is saying here, because he and the Corinthians are united together in Christ by faith, any comfort that he receives will overflow to them. You're going to be comforted with the comfort he is comforted with. Again, go back to that illustration of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about the body of Christ, using the physical example, right? He says, if every member were a hand, then where would be the sense of smell? If every member were, were, were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing, right? God has composed the body in such a way that not every member is the same, but there's an interconnectedness, just like in our physical body, and Christ is the head. Well, think about this. If your physical body is suffering, say your knee, do you not comfort your own body? Like, go and rub your knee, right? So in the same way, that's what's happening in the spiritual body of Christ. It's almost like that we should understand this way, that Jesus is the head and activates other parts of the body to minister to another part that's hurting. Again, this is why why the church is an absolutely glorious thing, right? And that we we can't just like stop being a part of the church because you're needed, You don't know how, but here, like Paul is talking about, you may be a part that's meant to comfort another part. You don't know how that will work, but maybe by your faithful presence on a Sunday morning or in a small group or on Sunday evening, you might be a comfort to somebody and you don't even know it. God comforts his people through his body. So then we ask, well, when does this comfort come or how does it kick in? Look at the second half of verse 6. He says, It is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we, that we suffer. When you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. I think this is very similar to what James is saying in James 1. We find joy in trials because we know that through the trials, through the testing of our faith, they're producing something in us. In James 1, as you remain steadfast and bear up under the heavy load of suffering, for a long time you understand what God is doing in and through us. So when we, here as Paul saying in verse 6, when we patiently endure suffering, when we recognize I'm walking the path of obedience to Jesus and this is part of that path, so I'm not arguing against God, I'm not complaining against Him, I'm not angry at Him, I'm not hopeless, I'm submitted to his sovereign and providential will going, okay, I don't like this. This isn't comfortable. But yet at the same time, I understand you're a sovereign God who rules over all things and you're providentially working all things for my good and for your glory. It's in those moments, you know, the comfort of God. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you don't get to a 2 Corinthians 12 part where Paul will say, I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away from me but he said, my grace is sufficient. So we cry out to the Lord, take this affliction away. But at the same time, we know he provides comfort. And this is the way that we respond. 
we patiently endure the same sufferings. And then notice verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So here in verse 7, Paul is confident about this. He is confident that what he's saying, what he has experienced, will happen in the lives of the Corinthians. His hope is that confident, hope of course is confident expectation of future good. His hope for them in their sufferings is unshaken. Nothing's going to change what he has said. He's confident because he knows that they can and will experience the comfort of Christ. And he's confident of this because he himself has experienced it. He says, I've experienced this very thing. I know it will happen to you as well. I can guarantee it. Their suffering, the, the Corinthians, may be of a different kind. It may be of a different degree. But yet the comfort still will come from God. Paul's confidence of their endurance and their experience of comfort is precisely because they are suffering. Dane Ortland, uh, who wrote Gentle and Lowly, says that for the Christian, suffering is safe ground. For this is the path Christ walked. And in finding ourselves on that path, we know that we are not fair-weather disciples. Right? A Christian who never suffers, oh boy, there's some questions to be asked there. But here, the assurance of suffering is, good, is a good place to be, and when we're in that place, we can know the comfort of Christ, certainly. So Paul, so far, he's laid out his premise that God comforts those in affliction, verses 3 and 4, and then he's shown how that works more practically in verses 5 through 7, is God comforts the afflicted through his body so we can comfort others. The body of Christ ministers to itself. Now in these final verses, verses 8 through 10, Paul is going to give us more specific example of how this is, is taking place. Okay, so notice first of all in verse 8, first half of it, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Notice what Paul doesn't want them to be unaware or the idea is ignorant about. Affliction, their affliction. And he says it's in Asia, which is modern day Turkey. But the thing that's really interesting about this is Paul doesn't give specifics. He doesn't say, we want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia where we were beaten and jailed and whipped and all of these various things. No, he just says we experienced afflictions. And then he's going to go on and describe what these things are. But I think it's also extremely important to note that he says he doesn't want you to be unaware of them. Why? He could, have, he could have opened this letter in a different way. He could have just started in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world. He could have jumped right into defending his ministry, but instead he wanted them to know about the afflictions he experienced. If the Corinthians are unaware of the affliction he went through, then they miss out on an opportunity to experience what Paul has just been describing. They're going to see how the Lord sustained Paul through very severe affliction, and that will be a comfort to them. Paul doesn't want them to miss out on this opportunity to experience the comfort of God and then to be the comfort themselves. 
In Paul's afflictions, he's already stated this, he's sharing Christ's sufferings. He is comforted by God. Therefore, his sharing with the Corinthians, his experience of suffering and his experience of comfort is for their comfort. They're comforted as they see how God has comforted him. So there's, a, I think, a principle here that we need to see. And it's this, that God uses his sustaining grace and the evidence of that in the life of one believer to encourage another and comfort another in their own afflictions. That's why the Bible is full of people's stories. We see people walking through things that we walk through, similar things. We identify with that and we go, well, God preserved them. He'll preserve me. He comforted them. He'll comfort me as well. And then he goes on in verse, the second half of verse eight and verse nine to describe the experience of the affliction. He doesn't describe it in detail, but he says, this is what it felt like. This was the experience that we had. And notice this progression. First of all, he says that they were utterly burdened beyond our strength. The idea here is weighed down far beyond what they were able to to endure, capable of dealing with in their own strength. Utterly burdened beyond our strength. But this burden did something, right? It led them to despair of life itself. It gets worse, right? I'm so burdened. I'd rather die. I don't want to keep living. Death is more enviable than to continue to be burdened by this affliction which is beyond my strength. I can't do it. This word despair that he uses is is a rare word in the New Testament and it carries with it the idea of a complete, a completely unavailable option of escape. I can't get out. There's no way to get out of this so I'm despairing. This affliction was so great that they were certain this was the end, right? They said, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It's like they had been before a judge and they said, you're guilty and you are going to die. And they're sitting there in the jail cell just waiting for the executioner to come in, take them out and behead them. That's the weight of this trial. They felt like convicted criminals just waiting to die. I do think though, I wanted to just for a minute park on that word felt which is interesting, right? Oftentimes in suffering and afflictions, we feel things. Paul feels things, felt like he was going to die. But those feelings are not always reality, are they? It wasn't for Paul. He felt like he was going to die, but he didn't. It didn't come true. That doesn't diminish the very real experience and the difficulty, but it does reinforce the reality that our feelings have great power over us and they can move us in one of two ways, right? I feel like I'm going to die. I'm in a situation where there's no way out. So I've got two options. You can either move towards God or away from him. And Paul has moved to the last, uh, to move to, he has moved towards God. Those feelings come upon him. And here is his response in the second half of verse 9. I feel like a death sentence has been passed over me. I have no way to get out, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I've got no way out. I've got no other hope. My only hope is God. The feeling of certain and coming death made them rely upon God. Notice as well, it's not general truths about God. It's specific truths, and it's specific to what they're feeling and fearing. They're afraid of dying, so what do they trust in? God who raises the dead. 
right? This is like you need the Bible as ammunition in your suffering, right? So you have a response to the difficulties of life that's rooted in truth. As Paul is facing death head on, he relies on God who raises the dead. Even if Paul had died, does that truth go away? Is he not still the God who raises the dead? Even if he dies, he knows one day he will be raised again, right? That's all what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. This reliance upon God and this specific aspect of what God can do and will do, it doesn't stop even if he dies. Paul still has a confident expectation of future good. If I die now, I still know that one day I will be raised with Jesus. I will have a new body. I will no longer feel these things. I will no longer be afflicted. Paul's prayer for deliverance is to a God who brings the dead to life. This affliction is not too much for him, right? You think about any situation that you may walk through, you're trusting in a God who raises the dead. There's there's nothing that beats that. You don't have suffering that can't be topped by a God who raises the dead. Paul realizes and wants us to realize and know the comfort that even if the Lord chooses not to deliver us from the affliction now, that does not diminish his promises of future good to us. Right? That's, that's the hope, the hope of a future good. Even if we don't feel like we're going to experience that now, it doesn't change the character of God and what he's promised to do. And notice verse 10 here as in verse 7, Paul is confident, right? He says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul's deliverance is really twofold in this passage. Yes, he's delivered from the immediate physical affliction in the sense that he did not die, but he's also delivered from trusting in himself to deliver himself, right? He's come to the end of his rope. He goes, I can't do this. I can't get myself out of here. I only have one place to turn. Being in such a place of desperation, he realizes that he could never deliver himself from any trial, right? And that's probably the temptation more, right? It's in the little tiny bits of suffering, if we call them tiny, where we're tempted to trust ourselves. I can get myself out of this. It's not that bad. Rather than relying upon a God who raises the dead, In 2, Corinthians chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is saying something very similar to what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 2, where he's saying that even if I die in this suffering, my hope is in God that I will be delivered, and it's either going to be in this life or into glory. So he says, first of all, in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, this is near the end of his life, he's saying, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's in a very similar situation as in 2 Corinthians 1, right? My, 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 I feel as if a sentence of death is upon me. Well, here he is again at the end of his life, feels the same thing. But then he goes on later to write of how the Lord's deliverance leads him into the kingdom, right? This is the best kind he's saying. Verses 16 through 18, at, first, at my first de- defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Paul is confident of God's present and future deliverance. And that leads us to verse 11. There's a final admonition here. In verse 11, notice the necessity of prayer. We often give lip service to the idea of prayer and suffering, right? Somebody tells us about something that's going on in their lives and our immediate response, and it's the right response is, I'll be praying for you. But I do think we have to ask the question, do we, one, do we do that? Do we actually follow up with that promise to do that? And two, do we believe that prayer is the means by which God may actually deliver someone from an affliction? Do we think it actually works? Or are we just like, oh, that's a Christian nicety. The Bible talks about prayer and suffering. So yeah, I'll do it. And maybe it'll work. Cross my fingers behind my back. How many of us actually think that prayer is the effective means by which God may deliver someone from their affliction? Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 11, you must help me by prayer. You must do it. Paul is confident that God comforts him, and he knows that God comforts and delivers through the means of his people praying, praying, <laughs> praying, getting tongue-tied. He's confident of this fact. In prayer, we submit ourselves to the will of God and are confident that the God who raises the dead will bring deliverance even if the deliverance looks differently than we would have expected. Right? Sometimes it might be different than we would have wanted, but does that mean it's not deliverance? No, it very much is. As God answers prayer, Paul says, many others will give thanks. And here I think he's referring to those who will be saved through the preaching of the gospel, right? He pray, the Corinthians pray for Paul. He's delivered from this affliction. He goes on to preach the gospel. Others are saved through that ministry. And they go, thank you, Corinthian church, for praying for Paul so that he might be delivered so he could come here and preach the gospel and we might be saved, right? There's like a, like a chain effect there that we don't even understand or see sometimes, right? That, that we pray, God acts, and then lots of other things happen, God is pleased to work through the means of prayer to, to, to deliver Paul from affliction so that others might hear the gospel and be saved. So God is a God of comfort and he comforts us. He comforts us with Christ through his body. One of the primary means that he uses is prayer. So when you read verse three, you could really conclude this passage as well. Praise be to our God, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Let's pray. Lord, it is a, a joy to read your word, to meditate upon truths like this. And may you cultivate in us the confidence that the Apostle Paul has that he knows he will be delivered. Even if the deliverance doesn't turn out the way we would ask, the deliverance that you bring in the midst of affliction is the best kind. It's the kind that we need. It's the kind that brings you glory. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that you would bring comfort through your word. That 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 has happened and would continue to happen and that as each and every one of us faces various forms of suffering and 
all different kinds, that we would be comforted by you and we know we will be. As we follow the path of Christ and we face affliction along it, may we not become angry at you. May we see this as from you in following you. This is your sovereignty, your providence. You've allowed this. And may we understand what you're doing in us and through us in the midst of it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.